Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the New Testament letter of Colossians. And we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1. If you're following along in our Pew Bibles, you'll find the Bible reading on page 983. Page 983. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 1, from verse 9 down to verse 23. And later in the service, the moderator is going to be speaking from these verses. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9 and reading down to verse 23. And it's page 983 of the Pew Bibles. Colossians chapter 1 then, beginning at verse 9. And this is God's word to us. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation to come and to be part of the morning worship here in Bakna. It's a real joy for Joan and I to come and share this time with you, share in worship, and uh, to spend a little bit of time maybe afterwards if you want to speak to you. I'm no rush, and it'd be nice to meet a few of you again. It's nice to be here back a couple of months ago for the sod breaking and uh, the encouragement that is to see a practical project like that, something that will impact the life of this congregation in a whole lot of ways, really encouraging ways, I don't doubt. Uh, and, I, and it will be really encouraging to see that going on and just driving up the road there today and seeing the ship beginning. I'm sure it encourages you as you drive past. And for some of you who have been planning and praying for this for a long time, it's great, isn't it? Really encouraging and um, great time to look forward to that as well. Thank you for your prayers as a congregation. 
personally, we really, Joan and I really appreciate your prayers for us as we serve in this role. It is a, it's a privilege to be in the role. It uh, brings its own many challenges, as you can imagine, and every week is different. And, um, but we're very conscious of God's upholding us. We, it's so tangible sometimes when you would normally think you should be tired. Um, you, you're not as tired as you, you think you should be. And it's just, I think you literally are being upheld as you do all the things you do. Dorney knows what happens this time next year. <laughs> when all the prayers, I remember Andy Rogers, he was moderator once. Um, he came to the assembly. When, when he finished his year, he had gone to park the car. And when he got there eventually into the assembly, his wife said, what kept you? What kept you? He says, oh, he says, I drove into somebody. She says, you see, the whole church isn't praying for you now. <laughs> so, need to watch. <laughs> anyway, I jest, but I, I mean it, and seriously, it is great. So I have come today to bring you what I hope will be an encouragement through the scriptures. Um, no matter what, what we're doing in our lives, it's so important just to keep our eyes on Jesus doesn't matter what stage of life, what stage of the life of the congregation, it's always important just to have that focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this passage here in Colossians does it. It does it for a particular reason because the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Colossae because they had a problem. And the problem gave him an opportunity to say things guided by the Holy Spirit about the Lord Jesus Christ that are so amazing and marvelous and wonderful. And so that's really why we have this. There is a problem there. It's, it's not just exactly clear what the problem is, but in one sense, there are those in the church in Colossae who are downplaying the person and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're trying to sort of diminish his importance and diminish his role and diminish his place. And so Paul is writing to correct that. And that's why he says it in the way he does. It's kind of very clear and he does it in the context of other things. So sometimes to try to understand a person, you need to get to know them in context. Isn't that right? If I said to you, you know, tell me about yourself, you might say, I'm the oldest in the family. So you put yourself in the context of the rest of your family. So I now know something of where you are in that. Or, you know, you could tell me something else about yourself, you know, what you do. And then I would say, but what's that look like? And say, well, in relation to all the other people, it's like this, or my role is this. So you put it in some context that shines out or it stands out. I mean, you take, for example, the Guinness Book of Records. That's what they do, isn't it? They tell us about people, but in their achievements, but in terms of, you know, something else. So they say, here's the, the longest, the fastest, the oldest, the tallest, you know, or whatever it may be. And so you think, all right, that, that tells me something very specific about you. So when Paul comes to tell us about Jesus, he puts Jesus in the context of a number of things. He says, this man, Jesus that you have heard about, and some of you actually have seen, perhaps. Or you can talk to somebody who has seen him and been with him, because we're talking so early on in the life of the church. He puts Jesus in context, in relation to, first of all, the Trinity, or God the Father in particular, and then in relation to everything you see, the universe, all creation, and then in relation to the church the people that he's writing to. And so they can get a, a sense of who Jesus is in a particular way. And so 
the nature and the person of Jesus really stands out from everything else. And, and that's what he's doing here. But it also, finally, I think, there's an application. He does help us to understand Jesus in relation to us, to you and I. And that's really powerful. You know, that Jesus Christ, the one who will think about it in these other ways, in relation to us. And so you stop, and when you really start to meditate and think about that, and let that sink into our hearts, it's really very incredible, very reassuring, marvelously comforting, wonderfully challenging. So let's have a look at these three things that are said here in this. In relation to the Trinity, in particular, in relation to God the Father, what does Paul say? Well, he says in relation to that, he says, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And let's just stop there. That's enough just to take for a minute. What does he mean here? Whenever Jesus was discussing with Philip earlier on in John 14, and you've heard that the section of scripture multiple times, John 14, read at funerals and so on, nearly every occasion, Jesus says in response to Philip saying, you know, how do we know the way to, you know, the way you're describing and how do we know the Father? He says, Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now that seems a bit strange and complex, you say, the Father, if I'm looking at you, I'm looking at the Father. The reason he's able to say that is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. God who chose, who chose to become human. I mean, even that is amazing, isn't it? That the eternal God, the God who makes everything, the God behind all things, the ultimate truth, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate everything, has chosen to become one of us. That's amazing. And it should cause us to, do, to be filled with wonder and praise. Wow. He has chosen to become one like us. Now this word image in the Greek word is icon. Icon. And you know there are various uh, other denominations that have icons that they are like little painted images. The Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox churches have little images that are purely surface paintings. A painting an image like that. But that's not what, it, what the word really means. Because the word icon is not just an outward likeness, but the actual essential reality. It's much more skin, than skin deep. In John 1, we have those words written there, we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father, the one and only Son. Something more than the surface. We've seen in Jesus the very glory of God. Now, we know what the image of something is on a stamp or a coin where you can see it. It's like a visual out, outline of that person, you know, the, the head of the, the monarch. Or in the, in the days of Jesus, it was the head of the emperor. And he would take the coin and say, whose image is on that? Meaning, whose visual representation is that? That's what a lot of people think of when they think of image. But when you read verse further down in this in this section of scripture, Paul goes on to say, 
in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. These are deep thoughts, but they're not beyond our capacity with the help of the Holy Spirit to reflect on because he is pulling out of normal life and everyday life analogies that we can grasp and think, so the fullness of God is in Christ. And of course, Jesus went on to make, to make it real. He showed us that that was real. He did what God would do. <laughs> he did God things. He did things that only God could do. The things that the boys and girls were talking about this morning. The wisdom, he, the knowledge, knowing the hearts of people, having such wisdom as people stood by and says, we've never experienced anything like this, even the wise of the day. The miracles he performed, the raising to the, from the dead, all things he did are things that only God can do. He began the recreation, as it were. He brought about the reversal of the curse. He undid the curse in many ways. So when people were being healed and cured, that was the reversal of the curse that came in Genesis. He was doing those God things and showing that he really was the God man, the one who had come to us. And it is, I suppose, mysterious to us because we really have so very little to compare this with. But that's the way it should be. Because you cannot compare Jesus with anyone other than divine, really, when you think of it. Because that's who he is. So what do you say to that? If this is describing Jesus for us in context of the, the Trinity, in context of the divine, well, I think the first thing that strikes me when I think about that, and, and there will be other things that strike each of us in different ways as the Holy Spirit impresses this truth in upon our heart and as we meditate upon it. Well, surely an amazing view of Jesus like this leaves us to be, as is said, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And if you start to think about it, that this Jesus, who is this Jesus? He is God. Surely if he is God, then it is right that we should be lost in wonder, love, and praise towards him, that he should be in the center of our hearts of praise and worship. But at the same time, in our everyday lives, isn't it so important to remember that this Jesus, who is God, is the one who we can listen to and, and sense by whose authority when he speaks, when he speaks into this world through, his, through the scripture, we listen to his word. And then we think, that is the authority. This is God speaking to me. And you think of the number of people and the number of things we listen to every day and how much attention we give to them, how much emphasis we give to them, how quickly we turn them on and we focus our whole concentration on them at, 10 to 8 or 9 o'clock or half 8 or whatever time or 6 o'clock and everybody gathers around and we listen with attention to this person speaking by whose authority. And yet here, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he speaks, when we open up the scriptures and let his words speak, there is a time we say, by whose authority. It says all of those other things that people say in context. What, what weight have they? What weight have those words in the context of the one who's divine who speaks? And you have his word. And you have access to his word. And you can 
hear his word and you can embrace his word and you can trust his word. So thinking about him in relation to God, that's the first. But then secondly, Paul goes on and he talks about Jesus in relation to the whole universe. For he then goes on to say in verse 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You'll notice if you are familiar, as I'm sure you are very familiar with going through the passage in some systematic way, the word all appears again and again and again. And those who like to preach, they pick up on those things. Well, rightly so, because where you see the same word occurring regularly in a particular passage, it's a clue to a certain emphasis that's in that passage. But notice the, you know, the all things, all creation, all things, you know, all things, again, 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 all things, all things, all things. You'll see it at least there four times in those few verses. It's talking about where Jesus is in relation to all things, everything. And you are a create part of creation too. See, you can't duck out of this one. I mean, we're all there. You have a place in this all things in relation to everything. Where is Jesus? Lots of people are deeply moved, aren't they, by things like the blue planet, the frozen planet, and all of those things where we are able to go under the ocean or under the ice or out into the, the universe by means of some technological skill. And it's wonderful to be able to see that. We can go in the macro or the micro, and we are amazed in both extremes. But that also helps us to understand that in the complexity and the mystery of this creation, which it is, it is complex, and it is mysterious, and it, it leaves us many times saying, I really don't understand. You know, I don't understand at all. I mean, who understands migration of birds? Nobody does. Oh, we know where they go and we know when they come, but we have no idea, and a scientist has yet to explain what goes on inside that, that, that little brain that enables that to come right back to the same hay shed that that was born in and annoy the life out of you all summer because you can't keep your washing clean when they fly in and out. But that is all part of the complexity of the wonder of this creation. And you say, when you look at it and you say, but the Bible says that all things were created through him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. Everything. Everything. It's vast. It's incredible. But isn't it marvelous at the same time? Because this is the one you know. And the one who knows you. And the one who loves you. And the one who is for you. And the one who pours out his grace on your life. And you and I are immersed in the world that he made. And we can rejoice in it. And we can rejoice in he who has made it for us. You know, like the psalmist who says in Psalm 8, you know, when I consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars which you have made, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You know, it, it's like it draws from his heart again, this idea of worship and praise. It lifts us up in our spirits. And even in the dullest of days, if you open your eyes, you can see the beauty of God's hand on all things. 
Absolutely. It speaks about authority. Authority, doesn't it? Because if it says here that he is the one who created everything that is visible or invisible, both in heaven and on earth, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. You can really say that he is above everything. All things must ultimately bow before him. Now we know in the world that we live in, we live in a world that is alienated from him. In fact, that is what it goes on later on in the passage to say that all things are in opposition to him. Verse 21 says, And you who were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds. It talks about the creation. The whole of the creation has fallen and is opposed to him. But nonetheless, there is a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that will happen. And even though the whole creation, everybody thinks it's in chaos, it's not in chaos entirely. His hand is upon it by grace. His restraining, controlling hand is upon all things. And we find great peace. We actually sang, I think, something of that in one of the hymns about he's got the world in his hands today. And it's true. He has the whole universe in his hands. Rest there. It's okay. Let's look after it, but rest there. That's amazing. This, this, this begins to expand our understanding of Jesus. And that's why we need regularly to go back and, and take many looks at him. And that helps us. So whenever these Colossian people were being talked about, you know, the, 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 the other ideas that were being shunted around, they were the sort of people uh, that were saying things like, you know, you need to be fearful of, of heavenly things and mysterious things. Paul is saying, you don't need to be afraid of any of these things. Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus rules over all. Jesus is in charge of everything. The universe has a meaning because Jesus made it. People will say to you, why is it there? What's the purpose of it? Why does everything exist? You know why it exists. It exists so that he will be glorified. All things are for him. That's the purpose of it. The ends for which God created the world, as one said, Jonathan Edwards, is that God's glory may be displayed in this world. And that is the most wonderful thing. It's perfect. There's nothing else perfect like the glory of God. And he displays it in this world. And he displays it in you and me when he comes to change our lives that we will be to the praise of his glory for eternity. And that's another story we don't have time to think of. But there is Jesus in relation to God, the Father. There is Jesus in relation to his creation. And then thirdly, he says something about Jesus in relation to the church. Verse 18, he continues. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the new genesis, the new creation, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church, so we're getting closer we are the church, the people. They called out people, God's people called out from this world to serve and love and follow him. He is supreme over the new creation. Just as he's supreme over the creation, Jesus is Lord over the new creation because that's what he's talking about. When it says here that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, really that's the new creation, the beginning. So we have in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, here we have the beginning, the new beginning. Things began again. 
If anyone is in Jesus Christ, they are a new creation, says Paul, writing later to the Corinthian church in chapter 517, a verse will, many of us know very well. And if you want that in another translation, it is sometimes helpful to look at it in another one. It says in the New English Bible that when anyone is united to Christ, there is a new world. The old order is gone. The new order has begun. And so the church is like the beginning of the new creation. So we say, well, I'm waiting for, you know, heaven. There's a sense in which heaven's already begun. It's, it's like that picture in Narnia in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the ice begins to melt. You know, that, they, that the coming of Aslan brings the beginnings of the newness. And one day it will all be bursting forth with life and glory. And that's what we have to look forward to. And, and, and so when we think about our application of that to our hearts, at least in small measure, surely if he is the head of the body, the church, then it, is something to, it says something about how each of us relate to him. Loving attention to Christ and his words and his wisdom in all things. And we don't have time to go into that, but that's what we do in the Lord's Day. We give ourselves time to reflect on what we hear. I think in, in Scripture, in the morning, we, we said there's a lot of things there. There's a lot of things there. I really need to be like the cow. I need to start to meditate on these things, you know, to chew them over and over, to let them go back and forwards in my mind and discuss them. And it's a good opportunity if we can do that, to take the time to do it. Sometime in, in the days to come, just take the passage Pray over it again and just pray it into our hearts a little deeper. So then, what does this all mean in relation to us? Jesus in relation to the Father, Jesus in relation to the creation, Jesus in relation to the church, and we just skim through those. Those are heavy, heavy, heavy things, but in relation to us. Well, verse 21, we've read already, reminds us about how we relate to him. And he's speaking here to the Colossians and he's saying, once you were alienated, meaning you were totally foreign to him, you knew nothing about him, <clears throat> you, were, you were actually, in a, in a sense, you were totally opposed to him and you were hostile in your mind. Interesting, because at the very essence of our being, it's not just what we do with our hands, but it begins in our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, and in doing evil deeds. And that was who they were. Paul is writing to him. He says, that's what you were. He says, but now he says, nowadays, and writing at the very beginning of the little letter, he says, we thank the Lord God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus and that, that love you have for the saints. So he's, he now knows that that's not who they are, but that's who they were. And so Paul is reminding us all, I think, where we stand before him until we come to the place where by his kindness, and by his love, he draws us to do what we were saying to the children. Trust him. We trust his word. We trust his, his description of us. We trust his explanation of why we are the way we are and why everything is the way it is. And we start to figure out and say, okay, I trust you, Jesus. I know that what you're saying is exactly true because it, it describes me. You describe me perfectly. You describe the struggle of my life. You describe, you describe the nature of my heart. I know myself to be fallen. I know myself even to be resistant to you. And even hearing the truth, I find myself, when you tell it to me, when I hear others tell it to me, I find myself pushing back on it. It's true. I don't like it. So what you're saying about me is true. I can trust it. 
And by his grace, he moves us beyond the part where we simply see ourselves as fallen to what we can be and what he's done for us. The gospel, which you have heard many times, but sometimes you hear it afresh. And here in this, Paul does again, tell us that. He says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, you who were alienated, so that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Isn't that a marvelous thing to read that? That is such a wonderful scripture. And then you think, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is, this is in relation to me, his child. I was alienated, but now I'm reconciled. And reconciled is telling us there, he's brought us into a, into a place of personal closeness, intimacy, and fellowship. And he says, it's not only that. He says he's going to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Think about that. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, you don't feel holy or blameless or above reproach any day, hardly. <laughs> Most days we feel <gasps> filled again, messed up again. We feel guilty. And, and we certainly don't say, we would never say, I'm above reproach. But we know he only does this because Jesus is the one who bears our sin. That's what he says. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. That's it. And you're saying, but what do I have to do? Well, what we have to do is go back to verse 4 of chapter 1. He talked there about it. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus. It seems complex, but it's not really, is it? Because we're all trusting in something. We're trusting in something. There isn't a person in this building today that's not believing in something. Every one of us is a believer. You're a believer in something. If I ask you to explain what your hope is, you, you, you'll try to construct something. You, you have to. You can't function every day in life if you don't have that. And all I'm saying is the Bible is teaching you and I to, to be sure that that what you're placing your trust in is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done for you, what he says here. And as a result of that, he will, he will justify you. He will put you right with God. He will make you completely right with him so that when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And you have heard this many times, I have no doubts. And that's why he is able to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Isn't that wonderful? There are many dull days in life. There are many days when it's gray, and life seems pretty, you know, the same, the same, the same. Maybe tomorrow, work for you looks like that. Maybe this week ahead of you looks ah, much the same as last week. Who knows? But you know, when we look to Jesus, when we focus on Jesus, there's no dull day, is there really? There's no dull day. You are part of something so amazing. We just have to keep reminding ourselves of that. We need to press it into our spirits and our hearts in doing it. You know, many of us can go back to anchor places in our lives sometimes, and I don't know for you, I have my anchor places. The other day, I, um, it's not mine, but it's, it's one that I find interesting. I was, I, w I was visiting Scotland recently, and I went to Dean Cemetery, where I visited Brownlow North's grave. Brownlow North means nothing to most people. But Brian Lowe North was a preacher who preached in Portrush in the revival in 1859. 
And many people came to faith during that time. It's interesting you're going to be doing revival in, in midweek, and you may even learn of Brownlow North. I don't know, but it's good sometimes to go to these places where the story of God has been writ large in people's lives. And you, you know, and you may have your own, or discover your own, where you, you meet people who have come to that peace and assurance, and there's something very tangible about it. I mean, Brownlow North lived a, a pretty wild life until he was 40 years of age, brought up as a, in, a, in a privileged life in London, and uh, from a very well-off family, and very well-connected family, and to the royal family of the day, and so on. But he came to faith, and he went out and he preached in Scotland and Ireland, all over the place, on one occasion, he was brought to, uh, he was going to speak in, in, in a church. And um, before he went into the service, he went into the vestry and, and there on the, the, the desk was a letter laid out. And on the letter were all his previous guilty sins that somebody had unearthed about him. This is your true story. What right have you to get into that pulpit and speak to anybody? And that was what it was. It was really one of those open letters, you know, challenging you, how do you dare? And um, it was a challenge, as you can imagine, when something like that happens. And so he, he looked at the letter and he prayed and he went into the service and, and then when time came to get up and speak, he got up and he opened the letter up and he says, I just want to begin with a letter. I've had this letter written and he read it out to everybody. And then he said, every bit of this is absolutely true. And most likely, this is not the half of the story. It's much, much worse than that. But then he went on to say the simple truth that we have read here in this, that we are reconciled by the work of Christ through his death, that he can present us blameless and without reproach. And it became an anchor point in his life that he could then share the gospel. If you are resting in Jesus, this is your anchor point for every day. For all time, the anchor point of the work of Christ in Scripture. And let's rejoice in it. And let's be glad. It's okay. You will make many mistakes. You have. We all will. But he still loves us. And on account of Jesus Christ, in relation to us, he says, you are my beloved child. That's what he does. When he looks at you today, even you think you've had the worst week possible and you've made so many mistakes, he still says to you as his child, he says, you are my beloved child. And with you, I am well pleased because of my son. Isn't that wonderful? That can turn any dull day into a great day. May the Lord help us. As one before said me, for me said long ago, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. To his name be praise and glory.